You can find it on any street in America. The storybook romance between the star athlete and the head cheerleader. Who had a fairy tale wedding and then moved into their dream home. He is now climbing the corporate ladder and she stayed home to raise their children. Everything was perfect. Or was it? Just a word about that series coming up September 8th and 9th. You know, everybody wants to live happily ever after. You find the right person, but we're really struggling with that as a culture, aren't we? I mean, half of American homes are breaking up, and some of us have experienced the pain of that in our own families. And so we're going to be talking about how to live happily ever after. There's a message on marriage. How to affair-proof your marriage is really an important topic. We'll be dealing with that. We're going to be talking about people who are looking to get married in a message called prenup. And then there's a final message on blended families. And I want to encourage you not only to be here, but I'm sure you have friends who would like to learn some life-changing truths. And so get ready for that series to start September 8th and 9th. It's called Love Affair. Well, this morning, I'm talking to you about something very, very specific. And I hope that when today's message is over, we'll have a clearer understanding of God's plan for our lives than we've ever had before. Could I just start by saying that anybody who goes to church ought to be able to find a straight line between that experience and eternal life. By that I mean you ought to know if you go to church how that teaching or how what you're learning is going to have a bearing on living forever. And I'm going to be academically honest, maybe more so than any minister you've ever heard before, but I'm going to say this. If there's no everlasting life, if there's no life after this life, then we all ought to go home. There's really no purpose in being here. You know, I, I hear people today that have the idea that, well, religion is to help you have a better life. Well, hey, listen, I'll be the first to tell you that if you employ what, what God tells us in his book, you'll have a better life. I mean, even if you never follow Jesus, you'll have a better life. But what's the point of that? Because if all you're going to do is sort of, you know, go through the motions and, and then die and go back. You remember some of you old-timers like me can remember the band Kansas? They had the song, Dust in the Wind. Hey, baby, if we're going back to Dust in the Wind, turn out the lights, the party's over if you'll let me mix the songs. I mean, what's the point of being here? I'll be the first to tell you that. If there's not a straight line between this life and living forever, then we're all wasting our time. I was a kid growing up in the 60s. And there was a song that was popular back then. I don't even remember who sang the song. But uh, the woman talked about different parts of her life and how disillusioned she was with stuff. For instance, she talked about being a little girl and going to the circus. And she thought she'd have a great time, but when the circus was over, she thought, is that all there is? And so she asked the question in the verse of the song, is that all there is? And then she talked about falling in love and her disappointment with love and how it left her dry and and, and she talked about that experience, and then she asked the question, is that all there is? Then she anticipated coming to the end of her life and dying, and she thought that she would look back on her experience and ask the question, is that all there is? Now, if you're really old like me, and you can remember the, the verse of the song, or the course of the song, because the course said this, if that's all there is, then let's keep dancing, let's break out the booze and have a ball if there's all there is, if this is all there is. Hey, I agree with that. 
If this is all there is, then anesthetize yourself. Drink up, shoot up, live it up. Because if all we are is dust in the wind, what's the point of disciplining ourselves? What's the point of listening to any God if there is a God? First to tell you that. But I do believe that there is eternal life. In fact, I really believe this. I think in the, in the inner person of every human being, there is something that lets us know we were destined for more than this. I bet you peanuts to popcorn, if you could get down to the gear work of an absolute drop-dead atheist, I'll bet you would discover that in his or her gear work, down at the core, is still that awareness that we were meant for something more than this. In fact, I think sometimes people that I've talked to who are atheists, I think they whistle through the graveyard. I think they know there's a God. I think they know there's a life eternal. But, I mean, like when I'm listening to somebody like Christopher Hitchens and I, I see the pain on his face when he talks, I'm thinking to myself, I'll bet you deep down inside there's something within him that knows that life is meant to be more than this. So when you came here to New Spring for this third of three worship services, my guess is today you know that at least there is an everlasting life. Some of you know you have it. Some of you are asking questions about it. And some of you may not be church people at all, but a friend talks you into coming today and you're saying, I'm open to explore the question. There was a guy in Jesus' time, when Jesus was on the earth, who wanted to know about everlasting life. The only thing was, he was not your average, ordinary guy who walks the streets of town. He was the president of the leading seminary. And if you don't know what a seminary is, it's not a cemetery where they bury people, but it's real close to it. It's a place where they train preachers. (laughs) Actually, and I'm thankful for seminaries, please don't get me wrong, but oftentimes what they do is they train preachers to make things real complicated. And so this guy, Nicodemus, was the president of the seminary, but because of the way things were set up back then, he wasn't just a religious guy, he was like also a member of the Senate. And my guess is at this point, he's probably 50, 60 years old, but he's got questions about eternal life. And here's the deal. If you're the guy that everybody comes to with their questions, who do you go to? I mean, who do you go talk to? So Nicodemus was sitting there in his office, and, and here's the deal. I mean, Nicodemus, if you, if you, like, take your Bible, and you, like, put your hand in there from, you know, Genesis all the way to Malachi, you got the first 39 books of the Bible. We call it the Old Testament. That's all the Bible that there was during Jesus' day. Nicodemus knew that. He knew every word of the Old Testament. He was a scholar. You could ask him about anything that Haggai said or anything that Moses wrote about, or you could ask him about any of the prophets, major, minor, in between, you could ask him about the poetical books. You could have asked him about Psalms. He would have known about all the things that Psalms had to say. And beyond that, he could tell you what all the leading rabbis and all the leading scholars had said about all the verses in the Old Testament. The only thing was, he didn't know how to go to heaven. And along comes this 30-year-old rabbi, this teacher, this guy who hadn't been to seminary. He was a carpenter. But extraordinary things were happening with him. This guy went to a wedding. There were jugs of water. He just turned them into wine. That doesn't happen every day. People couldn't see. And he touched them, they saw. People who were paralyzed and couldn't walk, he touched them, they walked. Nicodemus knew this was no ordinary guy. It was very, very tough for him, though, for this guy with all his stature, and with all his trappings, to go talk to a 30-year-old kid. Their culture was so different from ours. We're a youth-oriented culture today. In their mind, you couldn't really do anything until you were 50. And I kind of like that just a little bit, all right? But they just never thought you had any stature until you got like 50 years old and kind of learned some stuff about life. And there's a measure of truth to that. So Nicodemus would have had a real tough time going to this 30-year-old kid 
and asking him about eternal life. How do you start the conversation? So Nicodemus does, he, he, he says to himself, you know, I think, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to go in and kind of pat him on the back, get him in conversation. Maybe he'll sort of talk to me and we'll, we'll warm up to it. So Nicodemus goes in to talk to Jesus, and basically what he does, he comes to give him the good housekeeping seal of approval. He says to him, Rabbi, teacher, we know you came from God because nobody could do the stuff you do unless you come from God. And so he came to sort of kiss up to Jesus and, and tell him, look, you've got my seal of approval. Now, the one thing about Jesus, you've got to remember this. He's no ordinary guy. He is God in skin. I mean, he's existed from the very beginning of time. John tells us in John chapter 1 that he made everything that was made. There's nothing made that he didn't make. He is, he is God's son. He has always been here. When God said, let us make man, he was talking to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. I mean, he has always been. But during that time frame, he was God in skin. And the one thing I love about Jesus is that when people sometimes didn't know very much, you know, maybe people that weren't religious, maybe people that had been sort of what the world would call bad, Jesus was very patient with them, amazingly patient. But with these hyper-religious dudes, our Lord wasn't a bit patient. I mean, Nicodemus came in to kiss up to Jesus, give him the good house, keeping soul of approval, maybe hope that Jesus would tell him a little something about eternal life. And I mean, Jesus goes, bam, right to the heart of it. Man, he just blew aside all that praise, and he said, Nicodemus, you want to go to heaven, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born totally over again. You've got to be born from above. Freaked him out. Totally freaked him out. Because Nicodemus knows the whole Bible. I mean, he knows all about Moses' law. He knows what the rabbis and the scholars have said about the law. But man, this thing about being born again, and so he asked Jesus, he said, what am I going to do? How can I be born over again? Do I have to go back and get inside my mother and come back out and be born again? And Jesus said, no, Nicodemus, you don't understand. There is a physical world where human beings have babies, and there's a spiritual world. And what he was telling Nicodemus, you're more than your body. You have an inner person. You have an ever, everlasting person living inside of you. And he was saying, just like you had to be born physically from your mom, you have to be born again. Nicodemus still didn't get it. So now Jesus does something that's really kind of fun, and this is what our message is about today. What Jesus does at this point is he goes back to the Old Testament, and he pulls out something that Nicodemus will understand, something that he will know about. He goes back to a Bible story, and he says, you know, I've come to this world in order to make a way to have eternal life, and Nicodemus, it's like this. It's like something that you know about. It's like something that happened Many years ago in the Old Testament. Well, hey, if I'm Jesus, I love Bible stories. And this is an exciting thing. Jesus came into our world to make a way for us all to go to heaven. I would have said something like this. Nicodemus, you remember when David went down to that valley and went mano a mano with a guy nine feet tall and he killed him? It's like David killed Goliath. Hey, I'd have said something like that. Or I would have said, you remember when Daniel went down to the lion's den and he was in trouble and he got rescued by the angels and the lions couldn't touch him? It's like Daniel in the lion's den. Or do you remember when Moses was coming to the Red Sea and there was no way for them to get across? And, and it's like Moses opened up the Red Sea. If I'd been Jesus, I'd have used something like that. But Jesus uses the most unusual metaphor to explain what he came for and how to have eternal life. If you have your Bibles this morning, and if, if you don't, it's okay because these verses will be up on the IMAG screens. But if you have your Bibles, it's in John chapter 3 where this encounter goes down between Jesus and this, this seminary guy. Now listen, because Jesus is going to say, Nicodemus, it's like this. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole 
in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. In effect, Jesus said to Nicodemus, it's like a snake on a stick. Now, could I just be real candid with you today and say that if anybody else compared Jesus to a snake on a stick, I'd have problems with that? If I'm watching, you know, some atheist on television, this atheist said, you know, Jesus is like a snake on a stick, I'm going to be upset about that. If, if, if I'm listening to somebody, you know, on the street of town, and they're going to say, hey, Mark, you know you're Jesus? He's like a snake on a stick. Whoa. That's going to get my temperature rising. But it, it wasn't some atheist who said Jesus and his coming into our world is like a snake on a stick. It was Jesus who said that. Well, that begs some questions, doesn't it? So let's do something. Take your Bibles, if you have them this morning, and let's go backward, because we need to go back to the story that Jesus is talking about to get some insight on what went down here. And if you go back in your Bibles, you'll go back to the book of Numbers, chapter 21, and verse 4, because in this chapter, we'll find out what happened with this snake uh, that Jesus is talking about. The Bible says in verse 4 of chapter 21 of Numbers, Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. In other words, these are the the Israelites. God has told them he would take them out of Egypt, take them all the way to this promised land. But they had to take a detour. They got upset about it. They began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complained. There's nothing to eat here and nothing to drink. We hate this horrible manna. So they were complaining, they were grousing about God and saying, God, you're not taking good care of us. So, verse 6, the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, We've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. Now, I've heard a lot of prayers in church that went on forever, and I thought, what's the guy talking about? But i got to tell you, I understand this kind of prayer. The people, you know, they're getting snake bit. People are dropping dead from, you know, venom. I don't know if they were adders or cobras or what was going on. I heard in the wilderness. But they said to Moses, would you just ask God to take these snakes away? So uh, then the Lord told him, verse 9, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze, attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. There was a snake on a stick. God said to Moses, here's the plan. For the people that are dying, you know, got venom in them, all you need to do, just take a snake, a brass snake, make it, put it on a pole, carry it to the camp. Anybody who looks at the snake will live. Now, guys, could we agree? I mean, here we are, loosen the halos for a moment. Couldn't we agree? That is a strange plan, right? I mean, I don't like snakes, I mean, for the, I know some of you, you know, you love them, you have them as pets, and God bless you, I just think that's a special gift from God to, to love snakes. <laughs> I don't like to go to herpetariums, you know. I mean, I go to the zoo, and I think, ah, I don't want to go to the herpetarium. No, 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 no. And, you know, they have the signs, because there are two kinds of snakes, right? There are those that will hurt you, and there are those who will make you hurt yourself. <laughs> and I don't like snakes. I really don't. And for those of you who do, God bless. I'm not getting after you, I'm just thinking you have a special gift from God that caused you to love snakes. But now these people, you know, they're being snake bit, and and they're asking for help. And and if I'm writing the plan, I've I've read before what you do with snake bite. Aren't you supposed to, like, make an X or something with a knife or stylus where where the venom went in, and then you're supposed to suck the venom out and then spit it out? And I'm thinking, I don't sure I love anybody that much, you know. But that I think that's what you're supposed to do. 
So <laughs> the Israelites were going to God, and I don't think they had time to do that because there are some very poisonous snakes over in the Middle East, and there are those that you just don't have that kind of time. So of all things, God says to Moses, here's the deal. Go get some brass, make a snake, put it on a pole, tell everybody who looks at the snake that they can live. Now I transport myself back in time, and I'm going to ask you to go with me. We're going to go back in history to the camp of the Israelites when all this is going down. You heard all the complaining and the people saying, we don't think God's taking very good care of us, and we're out here in the middle of this wilderness and no McDonald's, Burger Kings, or anything, and we're just hungry, and, and, and God is... God's out to hurt us, and we wish we'd never left Egypt. And God said, I've had enough of that. So God just starts sending out all these poisonous snakes. They're biting people, and they're dying. You watched it all happen. you got friends that are going down. And you're saying, wow, you know, what's going to happen here? And along comes Moses. He's your leader. And he comes out, and he says, hey, I've been talking to God, and God has got a plan to take care of these snakes. And here's the plan. We're going to walk through the camp with a brass snake. All you got to do is look at the snake, and you live. I think there would be some people who would have second-guessed that, don't you think? I mean, I, I don't know that I wouldn't have. Because it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I think, first of all, I, I would think there would be people in the camp who would say, I don't see why I have to do anything. I'm an Israelite. I'm part of God's people. I mean, why should I do anything? I got bit by a snake. God should just come along and make everybody who gets bitten by a snake healed. I don't know why I have to do anything. Now, you know, of course, that I'm not talking about snakes because, remember, Jesus is saying this thing about eternal life. It's like the snake on a stick. So when our Lord, he could have chosen any story. When he chose the story, I'm thinking there's a whole lot in here for us today because the story of the good news is that all of us were sinners, that God sent his son Jesus into our world to die for us, that anyone who looks at him in faith and receives him can have everlasting life. I think there are people who listen to that story and say, I don't know why I have to do anything. Because I think everybody goes to heaven. Have, have you ever heard that? I have. I don't see why you have to do anything. I, I just think if God is a God of love, everybody goes to heaven. And sometimes I'll talk to people and I'll ask them, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? And they'll say something like this to me. They'll say, Mark, I've always been a Christian. I've always believed. Now here's the deal. Nobody, no matter where you are or where you've come from, no matter how good your family or how good your church experience, could I say to all of us, nobody has always been a Christian. That's why Jesus said, you must be born again. Being born the first time was not enough. Nobody was born a Christian. Nobody has always been born again. Nobody has always believed with this kind of faith on Jesus Christ. It's more than just accepting the reality that Jesus exists. The Bible tells us even the devil does that. We're talking about something else here. But I've met people who say, I don't see why I have to do anything. I think there would have been people in the camp who would have had an American concept. This is almost all exclusively American, but I do think there's a human trait here. There would have been people who would have said something like this. You know what? Looking at a snake, a brass snake, that doesn't sound like very much. There must not be much to it. There is something about our personalities, especially as consumerist Americans, that says if there's not a high price tag attached to it, there can't be much to it. How many times, I mean, how many times do you see something on a, on a counter, you know, at a hotel or a business or something, and the sign that says free, take one? What do, what do our minds say to us? Can't be worth much. If anybody can just walk in here and pull one off the counter, it must not be worth very much. We're so accustomed to the more something is some more something is costing the more it's worth for instance a high school ticket high school football ticket we're about to start football season 
A high school football ticket here in Wichita won't cost as much as a K-State ticket. And a K-State ticket doesn't cost as much as a Chiefs ticket. Why do we associate cost in that way? Well, we say, well, it's worth more to see K-State play than a high school, unless you don't like K-State. Or you might say, it's worth more to see the Chiefs play than K-State. There's value attached there. And so here's what happens oftentimes. God comes along and says, you know what? Salvation is free. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, you can come to Jesus Christ and receive eternal life free. And I just think there's so many people who listen to that and say, that doesn't sound very hard. There must not be anything to it. Now, here's the, here's the deal. If I tell you today, look, there are 25 rules. You must obey these rules to go to heaven. Our human spirit is all over that. We like that. We like rules. We like plans. We like schematics. We can say, okay, I can sign up for that. If I tell you there's this one church in this city that is so right that if you join that church and do everything they tell you to do, then you can go to heaven. Our human spirit is all over that. And yet God puts salvation on the counter and says, free. We struggle with that. And I think there were people back in Moses' day that had trouble with that. You know, this thing about looking at this brass snake, it's too easy. What can it matter? There's another human attitude that I find even in my own heart sometimes. Moses said, hey, look at the brass snake and you can live. I think there would be people who would say, I got a better idea than that. I got a better plan. And when you read the Bible, there were people throughout all the years who had a better idea than God. The idea that you can believe in Jesus and go to heaven, hey, I, I think you should join a church. I think you should be you know, brought up in this culture. I think you should do this or do that. But I want to tell you something. Nobody in that camp that day had a better idea. Because God's not interested in better ideas. He's interested in his idea. God is interested in what he wants to do. And, and, and that's the thing. I want to say to all of us today, no matter where you come from, you say, well, Mark, I had a different religious upbringing than what you're talking about. I just want to say to you, God has one plan. And that leads me to the fourth thing. Because I think there would be people in the camp of Israel who would have said, this, I th- this idea about looking at a brass snake, it makes no sense to me. Hey, doesn't make any sense to me. I'm the first to admit that. I mean, I, I, like I've already told you, if people get snake bit, I, I'm looking for serum. I'm looking for some sort of antidote. The idea of looking at a brass snake, I'm, I'm the first one to say, makes no sense. You know, the idea about Jesus dying on a cross and his blood being payment for my sin, and if I place faith in him, then God erases all my sin and writes my name in the census book of heaven and promises me eternal life. Could I be honest with you? That makes no sense to me. Everything I've learned about life, pretty much, is contradicted by the gospel. Because I've learned that if you're good, then good things happen to you. I've learned that if you don't break rules, then you get to enjoy privilege. I mean, these are the things that I've learned. I've learned that if something is free, there's not usually much of value attached to it. So when God tells me I can have eternal life as a free gift of God because Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago hung on a Roman cross and gave his blood as a payment for my sins, I'm the first to tell you that makes no sense to me. But it makes sense to God. And therein lies everything. Because in the final analysis, when you and I stand in heaven and God is there making a decision whether we go to heaven or we don't go, he's the one making the call. I'm not making it. So what if it doesn't make sense to me? My friends, it doesn't make any sense to them. They won't be making the call. 
the, the media, you know, and, and of course, I don't mean to paint them all with a broad brush because there's a lot of good people in the media, but I mean, we sort of have this voice that comes to us because of our electronic world. The media won't be the one making the call. The government won't be making the call. Only God will be making the call when you stand in heaven. So my question for all of us today is, do we realize that the gospel makes sense to God? We're about to enter into a really, really important point of this message. In fact, I was sharing with friends before the 930 service. I'm not sure that I'll ever say in my career anything more important than we're about to go into for the next 10 minutes. Because what I want to do today is I want to show you why the story of Jesus dying for our sins makes all the sense in the world. If you've ever heard about how Jesus died for you and you say, I don't understand that, I really believe in the next few moments, if you listen to what the Bible says, I really think you'll understand it, maybe for the first time. I'm going to take you to a text, and I know this is in Deuteronomy, that's way back in the Old Testament, and at first you may say, what does this have to do with me? But just hang with me for a moment. Here's what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 21, verse 22. If a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree... You must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Wow. The Jews executed people by stoning them to death. They didn't usually hang people on a tree. Crucifixion was a Roman thing. They picked it up from the Carthaginians. But isn't it interesting that Jesus Christ, the way God wrote this whole thing out, But it just so happened that he came along at a time in history where the Romans had to sign off on any execution that the Jews wanted to perform, and the Roman way of executing the worst kinds of criminals was to hang them on a tree. Years before this, hundreds of years, over a thousand years before Jesus was crucified, hundreds of years before the Carthaginians invented crucifixion, God came along to the Jewish people and said, listen, if you have to execute anybody by hanging them on a tree, get them off before nightfall, because anybody who hangs on a tree is cursed. Wait a minute. That rings a bell. Uh, What was the animal that Jesus said? It's like Moses put this animal up. It's a snake. As far as I know, isn't that pretty much the only animal that's under a curse? Because remember, the serpent was not like the snake that we know it today. At first, the serpent, before when God created the world, the serpent was probably the most beautiful animal in the world. It walked on legs. It had beautiful skin. In fact, I think sometimes when you see snakes, maybe you see the remnants of that. But the Bible talks about how that when the light hit the serpent, it, it's like it had dazzling beauty. It's shown there's even indication that the, that the snake or the serpent was covered with pipes so that when he walked, there was music. And that's the reason why Satan chose that particular animal to talk to Eve. I mean, Satan went into the body of the snake and he talked to Eve and tucked her into doing what God told her not to do. And God came along after everything fell apart. You know, he told Adam and Eve, the ground's going to be cursed and you're going to be separated from me and you're going to die. And then he came to the serpent and he said, from now on you're going to be cursed and you're going to crawl on your belly and you're going to eat dust. And now I hear the Bible say that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And somebody could say, well, Mark, I, don't, I still don't see where you're going with that. What does that have to do with Jesus? If you go forward in the New Testament to this book called Galatians chapter 3, the Bible says this. Listen, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. 
Now, I hope that makes sense now, because now we can sort of understand. I mean, when, when Moses carried that brass snake through the, through the, to the camp and the people looked, what they were doing is they were saying, you know what, we're in trouble, and we deserve to be in trouble. That's why they had to look. A look is a confrontational thing. I really believe, and I said a few moments ago, I really think this may be the most important message I ever bring in my career, what I'm about to share with you right now. Many people go to church, they hear the gospel, they may even pray a prayer, but something goes wrong, and their lives are never changed. I was watching the news yesterday, and there was this guy who had brutally killed a woman. He was in jail, and when they were interviewing him, he had reasons why he killed her. I mean, he, he still was not taking responsibility. You could tell he still had that sort of attitude about him where he was the victim. I hate that about people when they can, perp- they can be perpetrators, but somehow they're always the victim. And he went from that to telling this interviewer how that now he was a born-again Christian and he was taking the word of God throughout all the jails and that God had forgiven him. And I'm saying, hmm, mm, mm, something doesn't match up here. You know what it is that doesn't match up? It goes right back to Jesus' statement and it goes back to Moses' story. There's something about that look. There's something about looking at that snake. There's something about looking at Jesus on the cross that's confrontational. At the end of World War II, when the Allies went in to Germany, they found the death camps, and the sight that they saw in the death camps was absolutely horrific. Six million people. Many of them had been gassed to death. Many of them had been shot, treated like refuse. Big holes had been dug in the ground, and, and, and... And human beings were pushed into those holes by heavy equipment. It was a horrific sight. The starved, emaciated bodies of those people in the death camps. When the Allies found that situation, you remember what they did? They rounded up German citizens who lived around the death camps. And they made them look. Because here's what could happen. The German people could have said, hey, we didn't know this was going on. After all, we just elected this guy, Hitler, and hey, it's his responsibility. We have no culpability. We don't know what's going on. And the Allies didn't want that to happen. They wanted those people to know, look, you had a part in this. And they brought them to the camps and said, here, look, there's no avoidance of what happened. Let's bring that to you and me. When I do wrong, when I hurt somebody, when I mess something up, it's my nature to look away. If, if, I, if I've offended someone, it's my nature not to want to see that person coming. If I've made a really bad mistake and it's messed things up, I won't look at that. I'll just avoid the gaze of whatever I have to look at. There is a powerful moment when I have to stand and look at what I've done wrong face to face and say, you know what? I caused this. Now, I want us to go back to Jesus' statement and back to what happened in the wilderness. When those people in the wilderness saw that brass snake come through the camp, what they had to do was they had to look at that snake and say, you know what? We're getting what we had coming. We complained against God, and the reason for those snakes is us. And they looked at that. Here's the thing about Jesus Christ, and I want to say this to all of us today. I really believe in every one of our lives there has to be the moment when by faith, I know you can't see Jesus on the cross physically, but I'm saying by faith, believing what God said, I really believe there's a moment when you look in the face of Jesus on that cross and you see the nails in his hands and the thorns in his head 
and a nail in his feet, and you watch him there dying, I really believe there's a point where you've got to say, I caused this. I caused this. Because human nature is to shrink back from that and say, oh, hey, listen, I'm not that bad. I can't be that bad. I see Jesus dying on a cross, but I, I'm not that bad. Maybe, maybe I was bad enough for him to get his hand slapped, but boy, him dying on a cross, I'm not that bad. And after all, it's not all my fault. I married the wrong person, and I can't get along with my mother-in-law. And, and I, my, my teachers had it in for me when I was in school, and the law was just, the police were just watching for my car, and every time they see my car on the road, they just chase me down and give me a ticket. And it's just all these reasons why things have gone wrong in my life. What we're doing when we do that is we're just avoiding the gaze. I really believe before any of us can have eternal life, there's that moment where we see Jesus dying for us and we're saying, I caused this. I caused this. Now, I know what someone could be thinking today. You're saying, well, Mark, I go to church and, boy, you just bring this downer message. Man, you're making me feel really bad. Well, hey, isn't it just honest? I mean, you're saying, well, Mark, maybe I'm not that bad. What if we took your life, or my life, I can tell you, I don't want this, every thought we've ever had for the last six months, everything we've ever done wrong, what if they just played it on the screens here? I'd want to leave right now. We know we've got some really serious issues. But God doesn't want us to look at Jesus on the cross just so God can, like, rub our noses in it and make us feel bad. Because listen to what the Bible said a few moments ago. The Bible says Christ has redeemed us from the curse by being made a curse for us. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, that curse that was on us for our sin and our disobedience, God took it out on Jesus so that you and I, listen to the word, could be redeemed. I'll bet you didn't use that word 20 times last week, redeemed. It's a religious term, right? So let's, let's, take it, let's put it in a brown paper bag for all of us who are here today and get it, get it into the 21st century. The word redeem means to buy back. Do you ever buy something the first time, lose it, want it back so bad, and you say, you know what, I shouldn't have to pay for this twice, but you go back and buy it back? That's redemption. I had to ask Stevens permission for this. Stevens, 13 years old, he's a gamer, you know, he likes these video games, and I struggle to figure them out. Because to me, it looks like pretty much the same thing all the time, but they came up with these new systems and these advanced graphics. And so Stephen came to me one day, and he said, Dad, I got this old system. I got a ton of games. And he said, I'd like to take them to, start to name the store here, but I'd like to take them to this place where I can sell back my games so that I can get some money and buy some new games. And I explained to him why that was not a good idea. And I said, you bought these games retail. You're going to get practically nothing for them wholesale. And then you're going to go back and pay retail for new stuff. And I gave him the wholesale retail deal. But he talked his mom into taking him. I don't think he told her the whole story. And he did. He sold back his games in his system, and he got some money. He bought a couple new games in his system. The only thing was, he got to missing a couple of games that he really, really, really liked. And it just ate on him. Boy, he would like to have them back. And we were driving this week, and he said something to me that I really kind of snagged onto because I'm working on this message. And Stephen said, Dad, he said, here's the deal. He said, I'd like to go back to that same store and he said, and he said, I want to buy back my games. And I said, well, Stephen, there are going to be a lot of games in there. And he said, no, Dad, I'll know my games because they'll have my mark on them. Now, here's what the Bible says. Jesus came to die on a cross to buy us back. He became the curse for us that we were under 
in order that he might buy us back. I'm talking to somebody here today, maybe many of you here today, and there's just something within you, and you can't explain it right now, but it's just sort of like welling up on the inside of you. And what's happening is you're saying, I really need this. For the first time today, I understand what Jesus is all about. What is that inside of you that's causing you to crave that? I'll tell you. You've got his mark on you. He loves you. He brought you to this place in order that you might hear the truth that could transform your life. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment, please. If you've never invited Jesus into your life, this is the time to do it. By faith today, you've seen Jesus dying on the cross for you, and you're saying, I caused that. I know I did. But God doesn't want you to have your past tied to you like tin cans tied to a cat's tail. He wants to set you free from your past. Jesus became the curse for you in order that you might be set free, in order that you might receive it as a free gift. Don't despise it because it's free. It wasn't free for Jesus. But if you're ready to receive Jesus right now, you can do that, and you can pray from your heart. I'm going to pray a prayer, and you can follow after me and pray these words. These aren't magical words, but they do call out to God. And if you want to pray and receive Jesus Christ, and if there's something within you right now that makes you crave this, please don't wait. Just like it wouldn't have been smart for the people to have waited with venom in them. Please don't wait. Do it right now. Pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. Make me God's child. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the next thing. You know, you can pray a prayer, and it can be a private thing. But I'd like for you to do the first thing you've ever done, maybe, to take your stand for Jesus after your salvation. You got a worship folder when you came in today. There's a white field in here. And on the back, there's an address, a place for name and address. If you prayed to receive Jesus, would you just let me know that and check that first box and say, Mark, I prayed with you to receive Christ today. It's really important that you do, and I'll tell you why. We've developed just a little packet of materials to help you know what it means to truly know for sure that you're going to heaven. And we've, these, these are strategic and, and powerful things that are in here. And if, if you've prayed to receive Jesus today, we want to give you one of these. I promise you we want to give it to you. So if you'll put an address on here where we can mail it to you, you know, just check the box and say, Mark, I prayed with you to receive Jesus. Put the address on there, and we'll mail it to you this week. There's only one thing. If you prayed to receive Jesus, there's only one thing that is better than doing that. If you say, Mark, I want this today. I don't want to wait till next week. I don't want to wait till I get it in the mail. You don't have to wait. Okay, if you've got your card, all you got to do is bring it back to the resource center today. And you don't have to give a long testimony or a long speech. All you need to do is say, I prayed with Mark today. And if you go right back through those middle doors to guest services, they will give you one today and you take it home with you. And the reason we do this is we want you to know and understand the most important decision in the world. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward. Um, while, while they're coming, could I just say a word about next weekend? It's called Watermark. We're focusing on the importance of baptism. And there could be some even here today. You say, Mark, I've accepted Jesus, and I've, I'm, I've received him as my Savior, but I'm, I've never really been scripturally baptized. There's still time for you to be part of this great service. We'll be baptizing in all three services next week. We're going to have a wonderful time. You're going to hear a lot of great stories of people 
who, just like you, have prayed to receive Christ and their lives have been transformed. So if you've not taken that step, in just a moment, Deb will be on the IMAG and she'll tell you about what you can do to still be part of that. Let's receive the offering. Um, I know we're moving quickly at the end of the service. If we move too quickly for you to get your offering in, you can drop them in the boxes at the back doors or at the bottom of the stairways, stairwells. Lord, thank you for what we've experienced here today. And Father, I pray that you would solidify in the heart of any person who received Christ today, solidify the assurance of their salvation. And Lord, I pray for somebody who got very close, maybe someone got right there to the door. Father, I pray that you'll let them know how much you love them and how much you want them to be part of your family. In Jesus' name.